Well, good morning. It is uh, such a blessing and an honor to be with you. Uh, I can't believe that I've already been here for three years. Um, that's amazing to me that I've uh, been the youth pastor here for, for three years and been able to minister to our students and interact with so many of them, love them, engage them, uh, help them, and come alongside them as they pursue Christ and uh, their relationship with him. Uh, we had a great week this past week uh, going to teen camp. Loved every minute of that. God just really spoke and, and moved a lot of our students in their hearts and in their minds and challenged them to not only uh, identify as a Christian and identify their lives and their identity and who, they, and who Christ has called them to be, but how does that look uh, when their identity is in Christ? How does that look uh, when they live out in the world when they're with, with their occupation? And then how can they become participants in the kingdom of God? And so it's a great week. It's been awesome to uh, just journey with them. But today I'm excited to be with you. I'm excited to share what God's put on my heart for this message. And so uh, this morning, we're going to recap a little bit of Matthew 19 and then uh, go right into Matthew uh, chapter 20, kind of cover the entire chapter. But I think it's important for us to, uh, to look at it uh, from this perspective, uh, and I'll touch on that in just a second. So I'm going to open us up in prayer, if you would pray with me, and then we'll jump right into uh, our message. Dear Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are a, you are a great God. It's, a, it's nice to be in a place where we can worship you and, and honor you and exalt you and lift you up because you are worthy of our praise, Lord. And so, God, I just pray that you just come in and that your presence fills this place, that you fill our hearts and you help us to engage and to uh, be challenged and motivated and hear your truth. God, that's my prayer is that we hear you this morning, and uh, that your words are, are the words that are spoken, and that what we do here is just honoring and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, just, a, just a quick reminder uh, as we jump into this. Uh, the reason that we're going to recap 19 and then kind of move into 20 is because I think that there's a, there's a flow between 19 and 20, and that there's this uh, kind of this pattern that we're going to see and uh, that's going to be laid out for us. Remember that the Bible was not written in chapter and verse. So the, the Bible was li- written in letters. And so when you had the, the, uh, the gospel of Matthew, it was just one long letter. And later on, we decided that we were going to break it up into chapters and verses and put title, titles like chapter headings and that kind of thing. And uh, so with that, I want to kind of recap a little bit of what Pastor Brock talked about last week and then kind of move forward. So 19 starts with divorce and then moves into humility uh, with the the humbling and talking about Jesus humbling us and telling us to be like children. And then it moves into this uh, rich young man who asks Jesus some questions and gets some response. Uh, And the overview is that I think that God's called us to uh, humble ourselves and that through that humbling of ourselves, uh, he can help us. Uh, be transformed, see, spiritually. So Matthew 19, 13 through 15 starts off like this. It says, one day some parents brought their children to Jesus so that he could lay hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. But Jesus said, hey, let the children come to me. Do not stop them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And he placed his hands on their heads blessed them before he left. God calls us to humble ourselves like little children. So as I was processing this little section of chapter 19, uh, I asked myself, what is it about children that God desires for us to resemble? Why does God say that we need to be like children? Uh, Because the children are going to be the ones who are going to be getting into the kingdom. And so as I process, what do children act like? What what makes... uh, a child-likeness, something that God desires. And I came up with a couple ideas, a couple different things. Uh, the first one is that um, <clears throat> children recognize their need. Children recognize that they are helpless, that they uh, need a provider, and that is a quality that God looks for in us. Children at this time and during this uh, age, I guess, or this time period, were considered pretty low value. Uh, they, they consume food, They didn't really work yet because they're really young, so they didn't really provide much for the family. They were kind of a nuisance. 
And so it's not super surprising that when these children came up to Jesus that the disciples would say, hey, stay away from Jesus. You're just a bother. You know, we don't, we don't want you around. But Jesus notices them and calls them forward. Another thing that I notice about children is that children don't try to impress. They're not trying to earn love. I have a niece uh, in Florida. My wife's uh, brother has a, has a daughter. Her name is Lolo. And as I love on her and interact with her, what I notice about Lolo is that she doesn't uh, try to go to the store and buy me things to, like, buy my love. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't walk around and try to impress me or try to put on her three-year-old makeup and wow me and earn uh, Uncle Josh's love. Not happening. No, Lolo's just Lolo. She just is who she is, and she loves herself, and she loves you, and she openly embraces you, and that's what God looks for. God's just looking for this recognition of need, this, this embodiment that I'm not here to try to impress. I'm not here to try to earn. I just accept and give love. But also, uh, I think that children are comfortable with who they are. They're imperfect. Children are definitely imperfect, but they're comfortable. <laughs> they're comfortable with it. They're okay. Um, they're not trying to hide their imperfections. Uh, they're not trying to cover it up and put on a mask or be in, inauthentic or disingenuous. They just are who they are, right? Uh, if you spend much time with kids, that's exactly what they act like. So God calls us to humble ourselves like little children midway through chapter 19. And then toward the end of chapter 19, right at the end, there's this story, 16 through 22, and it says this. A man came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Why ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones, the man asked. Jesus replied, you must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. I've obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. What else must I do? Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions. Give the money to the poor, for you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when the young man had heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. One of the things that can prevent us from humbling ourselves is pride. And we're going to look at three different scenarios in which pride is a factor. And the first one of those is this man, this rich young man who uh, has a lot of pride and security in his stuff. A lot of pride and security in his materials. And now it doesn't come out and stop. The Bible doesn't come out and say, hey, this man was just so prideful and arrogant that he just walked away. Uh, and that's why he walked away. But I think if we look at uh, our humanity and we know who we are and our personhood and, and the desires, uh, broken desires because of sin that God uh, recognizes in us, I think that it's pretty evident that this man walked away because he had a lot of things. And that's kind of what the Bible says, that he had a lot of stuff, so he went away sad. W what is it that caused him to do that? What is it that caused him to, to, to move in that direction? Well, I think that money and power have some some things that we can put pride in. A lot, of our t a lot of times money is something that we identify with. That money can become uh, an identity or a status builder. We also look for what we have and we look to our possessions as a way to compare ourselves to other people. We look what we have in comparison to other people and kind of try to rate ourselves and see how we're doing in life and this idea of keeping up with the Joneses. I'm sure you've heard that. Uh, that's all based around materialism and, and pride in stuff and trying to find identity in those things. Materialism is rampant in America, absolutely rampant, and I'm sure you know that. Uh, most, uh, most brands now are, will market to anyone. They'll market from, from two years old all the way through the rest of your life, and uh, they are looking to try to get you to put your identity, your security, and your pride in your stuff. They want you to hold on to that. And uh, that's, a, that's a big danger. That's a big danger. We, we, I was born in America, raised in America, lived my whole life in America, and I'm grateful for that. I love the freedoms and the rights that we have, the, the chance to pursue our dreams. But America is not just a nation, it's also a system. 
a system shaped by capitalism, democracy, corporations, and convictions. And there's a particular spirit that America has uh, that since from the birth uh, has been whispering into everybody's ear more. We want more land, more expansion, more wealth, more power, more influence, more customers, more square footage, more product for less money. We want more up and to the right. When in doubt, more, because more is better. That is the, that is the, the underlying current of our society. More, more, more. You need more. You need bigger. You need better. You have a 50-inch TV? Psh, should have a 70-inch. Oh, you got a 70? Psh, should have a projector that's 100-inch. Oh, you have a projector? You should have a movie theater in your home. Right? I mean, it's always more. More, 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 more. We need to have more. We need to have more. But more is not always better. More is sometimes bad, sometimes destructive, and sometimes it's just downright evil. And the cool thing about the Bible is that it critiques that. The Bible calls us back. The, the, the words in the pages of that book call us back to uh, this idea that, you know, we aren't called to accumulate all this stuff over and over and over because there's very little eternal value in those things. Not that we can't accumulate anything or that money in and of itself is bad. That's not the, that's not the point here at all. Nope. Nope. But how we use that money and where our identity and security come uh, shouldn't be found in that money. The problem is that the reason that rich young ruler walked away sad, I think, is because he was... Uh, not going to trust Jesus, but rely on his stuff. And what happens is we can easily fall into that trap of just relying on our stuff, relying on our material goods, re- relying on um, money. I knew that for a long time I pursued that in my own life. I pursued money. I knew I had this passion to make as much money for as, fa- as fast as I could for as long as I could. I wanted to be rich and not have to worry about paying the bills. And I think that that desire to make a lot of money came from this desire that I didn't want to have to rely on anyone, uh, and that was including God. I didn't want to have to rely on him. And when you have a lot of money, when you accumulate a lot of things, when you have a lot of stuff, but, but when this young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. When we have many possessions, it's very easy to put God on the back burner because we, have a, we don't have to rely on him. We don't, have a, we don't have a crazy need. Again, calling us back to this need. Be like children. Recognize your need. I noticed that when, um, when I was a kid, if my parents would walk away from me in the grocery store, I'd start freaking out. I'd be like so scared, like, Mom, where did you go? Where, why aren't you holding my hand? Aren't we supposed to hold hands when we cross the street? Like, where'd you go? What's, what's going on? I just wonder in our own lives, do we recognize when our Heavenly Father has walked away or we've wandered off from Him when He's not around? Because I know that little kids, when you leave the room, they take notice. They know that you're gone. This next, this next uh, section uh, that uh, we, we kind of walk through here is um, Matthew 21 through uh, 16. This is the start of that chapter. And it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early in the morning to hire his workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal day's wage and sent them out to work. At 9 o'clock in the morning, He was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them that he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon, again at three, he did the same thing. At five o'clock in the afternoon, he was in town again and saw some people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one has hired us. The The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening... He told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those, when those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came in to get their pay, they assumed that they would receive more, but they too were paid a full day's, full day's wage. When they received their pay, they processed it to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you've paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, haven't I been, uh, have I been unfair? Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? 
Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first, and those who are first will be last. See, the vineyard workers, I feel like, placed a lot of their pride in their work and effort. They had pride in their work and effort. Again, that's another uh, undercurrent of our society, undercurrent of who we are. We have this mantra, work for what you get. You got to work hard. You got you to grit it out. You're going to get what you deserve. No free handouts. Nope. If you want something, you've got to earn it. And we, we also have this sense of justice. This, uh, we want that if I'm going to work really hard, I should get the same amount as someone else who's working hard. And if I'm working really hard, I shouldn't get the same amount as someone who's not working as hard as me. So there should not be unequal pay. There should, it should all be equal. It should all be right. We got to work for what we deserve. We want equal treatment. Um, we also want to be in control. We want to be self-reliant. So there's this story in the Bible. <clears throat> there's this guy who is hanging on the cross next to Jesus, this thief hanging next to Jesus. And he recognizes that Jesus is God, and he says, you know, basically I believe in that you're Lord, and Jesus looks over to him and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. For the longest time growing up, when I was working through high school and stuff, I had a really hard time with this thief on the cross. I really struggled with him, because I thought, how is this guy who is 30 seconds from death, how, how does he just look over at Jesus, recognize that he's God, say, hey, I believe in you, and then Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. How does this guy get to go to the same place that I get to go when I'm down here slugging it out on earth and I'm having to be a Christian and do all the right things, and yet this thief on the cross, in those last 30 seconds, he gets to live the good life, and in the last 30 seconds, he, he gets to go to heaven because he says he recognizes Jesus. I said, that is unfair. I'm not about that. I don't want to see that guy in heaven. You know what? If I run into, that, if I run into the thief on the cross in heaven, I'm going to ignore him. Because it was just unfair. Like, how, how in the world does he, in the last 30 seconds, he gets to go to heaven, and I'm down here doing my thing? But what I recognized as I continued to grow in my faith and, was that, uh, that the thief on the cross, he got heaven. He recognized God. But uh, he didn't live the good life. He struggled. That's why he was on the cross. And that uh, what I was not recognizing in my own life is that if you're walking with Jesus and you feel like you're slogging it out, that you're just running through the mud, you haven't experienced God's joy. You haven't experienced his peace. You haven't experienced his glory. You haven't experienced the, the total infilling of his spirit in the, in the fullness that he desires you to have. Because if you are down here on earth and you're a Christian, you are living the good life. That life is good. Even when it's bad, life's good. And so as I processed, I started with this struggle with this thief on the cross who I thought was, uh, it was unjust that he would get heaven right before he died. Um, but what I, what I realized is that I was self-reliant. I was relying on myself for heaven. I was relying on my works and my goodness and trying to, trying to be good for God. I was trying to make myself better. I was trying to do something that's impossible. I was trying to transform my, my heart, which can only be done by God. And so I guess I, I want to question you, you know, maybe you've got to ask yourself, am I relying on myself too much? Am I relying on my stuff? Is my identity in my stuff or am I relying on myself Am I putting all my, all my efforts in, in my works and just trying to be a good person? Because I, I don't want you to be fooled because it's, you can, in your human strength, you can modify your behavior. I want you to know that. That is possible. There are people who are moral, morally good people in this world uh, that are not Christians. What you cannot do is you cannot transform your heart. You can't change you from the inside out. And so I don't want you to be fooled that uh, because you maybe do good things that you've been transformed. I want you to be transformed completely and holy, and I want God to do that. And so uh, that, that calls us to, to humble ourselves, surrender ourselves, and to stop relying on ourselves. And then there's this next section of Matthew, kind of the, this middle section. It's Matthew 20, 28, and it says this. 
Then the mother of James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? He asked. She replied, In your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered them by saying, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Jesus told them, You will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right and my left. My Father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the ten of the disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. All right, so let's just stop real quick and take like a, an overshot view of this um, of this scene that we just see, uh, kind of, I said in first, the drone view. If you get a drone up in the air and you can take pictures from above, this is a drone view of this scene. So what you see is I can just kind of picture Jesus sitting in this room. He's presumably in a room, and he's sitting with his 12 disciples, and then as he's sitting there, in comes mom, mom of James and John. And uh, she kneels down before Jesus in front of all of them, and asked Jesus if he could exalt her two sons to the highest place, to the right and left of Jesus. And uh, I don't know how people would have reacted, or I don't know, I'm sure, obviously we know that the disciples were, the other ten were a little upset. I think they were pretty ticked off um, that this mom would just show up and uh, ask Jesus to, to be exalted. But if I was James and John, I think I would be like, Mom, hey, hey, what are you doing? Why are you here? Go back home. Like, why are you? But what we see is that I think that maybe James and John were in on this. Because, because when, when she asked them and then he replies, hey, you don't know what you're asking. Are you, able to, are you able to drink the bitter cup? It says that they responded, oh, yes, we are able. Not the mother responded, but they responded. James and John and mom all responded, yes, we are able. Uh, again, the pride, the arrogance that they had to have in their spirituality to think that they could drink the cup that Jesus was going to drink. He said, are you able? And they, he said, you don't know what you're asking me. And they said, yes. I think here in this, in this little section, you see in this, oh, yes, we are able, that the disciples are basically just... Uh, James and John are basically just agreeing to whatever so they can get their way, so they can get what they want, because they want to be exalted. They want to sit on the right and left of Jesus, and so basically whatever Jesus, whatever follows after their request, uh, Jesus, they're just going to agree to. Whatever Jesus says that they need to do, they're just going to agree to, and I think I, I, rem- I remember doing that as a kid. I would want something from my parents. I would ask my dad. I'd be like, hey, dad, dad, I really want these pair of shoes. And my dad would say, okay, well, Josh, we're going to need you to go home, and you're going to need you to clean your room. Okay, dad, gotcha. No problem. I'll clean my room. Okay, but we're also going to need you to help mom put away the dishes and, and clean those up. Okay, dad, yeah, yeah, whatever, uh, with no intentions of doing that. Um, okay, and then, uh, and then d- Josh, if you're going to get these shoes, we're going to really need you to probably take out all the trash and vacuum the house. Okay, dad, cool. Uh, you got it. I am able. Yes, I am able. Okay, Josh. Me and your mom, we recognize that you're only 10 years old, but we're going to need you to re-roof the house. Okay, dad, no problem. I got it. Have you seen me? I mean, I am, I am able. I will do that. No problem. That's basically what these guys were doing. Just agreeing to whatever, you know, I, I, I'll just do whatever it takes because I want to get my way. I want these shoes or I want to be exalted to Jesus' right and left, so I'm just going to say whatever. I'm going to agree to whatever just so I can get my way. I think that's exactly what we're seeing here in this, this little section. They're just a agreeing to whatever. Uh, and so uh, you can see how this would be a, a random scene. I can't imagine how I would feel if I was the other 10. I see James and John, and then mom walks in, and they're asking to be exalted. I, I can't, I'd be like, who do these guys think that they are? Have we not been around these three years with these two guys? Why do these two guys think that they deserve to be exalted? I mean, these guys are off their rockers, and they got their mom to help them. Like, they're pulling out all the, all, the, all the cards. I can't believe that they're doing this. I, I would be upset. And uh, in the Pastor Josh message version, I think it would be the disciples were ticked instead of indignant. But that's just me. And so uh, 
But uh, what you see is James and, uh, James and John display spiritual arrogance and self-righteousness. And we can do the same thing. We can, we can let our pride overflow into our spiritual lives and just become arrogant that uh, maybe we are holier than, than other people or we're doing better things than other people. But what we realize is that we're all equal. We're all sinners in need of grace. That's this idea of being humbled, this desire to be like children, right? We've got to humble ourselves and recognize our need. Um, I, I hope that we can recognize that in our own lives, and it's a call to be self-aware, self-awareness. God, what are you calling me to do? What you see is that Jesus doesn't um, rebuke them or call them, you know, idiots or anything, you know. He kind of just, I'm thankful for that because I, Jesus should be calling me an idiot a lot. But uh, he just kind of gently nudges them back to the truth. In this next section, 25 through 28, he says, But Jesus called them together, come on, group hug, and said, uh, You know, that the rulers in this world lorded over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you, you must be uh, your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. So God calls us again to humble ourselves and serve others, right? This call to humility. So we have humble yourself like a child, prideful, rich young ruler, pride, pride in his stuff, vineyard workers, pride in their work and their efforts, disciples, close to home, Jesus' homies, or Jesus' buddies, pals. Let's do that, pals. It's proper for this service. And, um, and, uh, and, they, they had this spiritual arrogance, this spiritual pride, right? And then at the very end, like the, the bookend is a call back to humility. Hey, humble yourselves. You see what the world does. They flaunt their authority. They flaunt their stuff. They flaunt their hard work. They flaunt their spiritual self-righteousness. But you, you, you're not going to be like them. Humble yourself. Serve. Love. This, this call to humility again. I hope that that's our heart. I hope that's our desire um, to be humbled and to allow God to, to move and change and transform us. That we don't try to shame other people. One of the things I think that we can really get wrong in our, in our faith is that sometimes we can go out to the world and expect them to act like we do except for they don't know Jesus. We're not called to judge the world but just called to love them. And so when you see things, people doing things wrong, immoral or, or otherwise? Does it break your heart? Do you have compassion? Do you have desire that they would change and be transformed and come to the knowing uh, love of God? Or do you look at them when they do something wrong and think, man, I'm glad I'm not like them. Man, shame on them, that bad boy, that bad girl. Can't believe they're doing that. Well, they don't know any better. They don't know the truth. They don't, know, they don't, know, they don't have a relationship with Christ. So I, I just challenge us to humble ourselves Become self-aware and just allow God to, uh, to move in us, man. To, to really grab hold of who we are and transform us. This summer, at summer camp, I had the chance to speak to our students. We had about 200 students at summer camp this year. And we talked about identity and purpose. And I, had a, I felt like I had a pretty tough, tough topic, which was the theology of work. And so basically what I was talking to my students about was this, um, and I think it applies to all three of these areas, is uh, I was talking to them about, hey, if you don't know who you are, if you don't know who you are and why you're here, what can easily happen is what you do can become your identity, right? So if I don't know why I'm here or who I am on the inside, then what I do becomes my identity. So I don't know who I am. But I do know that I like to play basketball, and so then my identity becomes basketball. So I'm not just Josh Parker, I'm Josh Parker the basketball player. Or, or whatever else, whatever occupation that might be. I'm, I'm Josh Parker the doctor, or I'm Josh Parker the youth pastor, or whatever, whatever that occupation might be. And the problem is, is that those become our identity. And I think in these three areas, the same thing can happen. That our money or our, our stuff can become our identity. And we've got to, we, do, we have to work hard to uphold this uh, persona, uphold what, what we look like and, and this, this idea. Same with 
our, again, our hard work with the vineyard workers, they gotta, we got to uphold our work. I was looking at the story of Exodus with the Israelites, and they talked, talks about how uh, they were enslaved to Pharaoh and the Egypt, Egyptians, and how every day the Israelites woke up and made bricks every single day. Brick, 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 made bricks, made bricks, made bricks. And what, it, what ended up happening is that, obviously, we know that the Israelites got freed. They, be, they were no longer slaves. And then God asked them to take one day and, and set it aside to, to rest, right? And what we find in that story is that some of them just couldn't do it. They couldn't, they couldn't take time to, to, to rest because their identity, their purpose was, in, was found in how many bricks they could make per day. And so they were taken out of Egypt. These Israelites were taken out of Egypt, but the Egypt wasn't taken out of them. And their identity had become making bricks every single day. And I just want to, I just questioned my own, as I was processing this whole thing, I was just questioning myself, man, what am I placing my identity in? Where am I being found? What is God challenging me to do? Where does God want me to humble myself? Where does God want to transform me? Because there's all these different areas of life, and each one of them are, is calling and, and begging for me to make it Lord. The other cool thing that we did at summer camp was there was a workshop that we had, and there was, a, oh my goodness, like popsicle sticks, like thick popsicle sticks. And uh, we wrote different things on them. The first thing that we wrote on the first popsicle stick was Jesus is Lord. And then below all those, we wrote different things. So we wrote occupation, identity. Um, we wrote dreams and aspirations. We wrote sexuality. We wrote all these different things. And after every time we'd write a new popsicle stick, we had to move Jesus is Lord to the top. Jesus is Lord is priority. Jesus is Lord over my occupation. Jesus is Lord over my dreams and aspirations. Jesus is Lord over my sexuality and how that's expressed. Jesus is Lord um, over all, my, all these different areas of my life. And if any of those get misplaced, right, if, if any one of those becomes identity or priority, then things get mixed up and uh, we lose who we are. And... I think that the first step in us recognizing our need or recognizing our misplaced priority is in humbling ourselves. You cannot receive salvation unless you humble yourself and submit to the Lord. That's the only way. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be fighting with your, your will and God's will your whole life, just trying to, trying to fight him to, to be on top. And so um, we, see, we see this perfect response to this outline of, Call to be humble for children. Then you see these three areas of pride. Calling back to be humble and humble yourselves and serve others. And then the response to that, I think, is right at the very end of this chapter. Chapter 20, there's a response to it. And I think it tells us perfectly what to do. So if you would go there, it says, uh, it's Matthew chapter 20, verse 29, or yeah, through 34. And it says this. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when, the, when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them, what do you want from me? He asked, Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received sight and they followed him. If we look at this scene, we see first that these men are blind. They cannot see. But they hear that Jesus is in the vicinity. They hear that Jesus is around, that Jesus is in the area. And so they begin to cry out to him. They begin to cry out to him, hey, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And then you see this crowd, who I view as like the world, this large crowd who was following Jesus. And this large crowd told these blind men who were crying out, hey, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. They, they looked at him and they said, they said, hey, you two, shut up. Shut up. It did not say, the Bible does not say, that this large crowd looked over to these two blind men and said, 
hey guys, we know that you're crippled, but would you please be quiet? It said no. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. I think that that, that scene right there, that little, that little snippet is exactly what the world wants to do to us. The world wants to convince you that your needs are not being heard by Jesus. That the, that the noise is too loud, that he can't hear you and he's not looking to provide, he's not looking to step in, he's not looking to, uh, to give you what you need and that you just need to shut up. Just pipe down. You're, you're, you're hurting, you're in, you have issues and Jesus doesn't want to deal with them. Kind of the same mentality with the kids, right? Kids run up to Jesus and the disciples say, get out of here, Jesus doesn't have time for you. The world wants to silence you. And I think sometimes we can, when we hear that noise, when we, when we feel that, that pushback, we can maybe shrink and kind of get embarrassed and begin to doubt and, under, and, and not, not be really sure of what, what to do in response. But I think the perfect response, I think that's exactly why it's at the end of this chapter, is the, is the, the following response from these men. It says that the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. So they're crying out to Jesus because they just hear that he's in the vicinity. They can't see him. They just know that he's there. That's what they hear. And so they start crying out to him. They, they're told to be quiet, to hush, and to, to go back to their, to their mats or whatever. And they start screaming even louder. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And what happens? Jesus notice. He notices them. He's attentive. He comes over to them and talks to them. And he says, hey, what, what do you want? What do you need? And I want you to notice their response again. They respond specifically. And they don't say this. They don't say, well, Jesus, hello, can't you see that we're blind? You know what to do. You don't see them say that. You don't see them say, Jesus, you're the son of God, so get on with it. Like, come on, man. You don't even say, you don't even hear these guys say this. Jesus, we want to be healed. What you hear them say is, Lord, we want sight. Very specific. Very specific. So these men who had a need who were desiring to be transformed, to be changed, to be healed. They cried out to God. And when the world tried to shut them down, they cried all the louder. And then when God asked them what they need, they were very specific. They were persistent. They were specific with their need. They knew, they, they, they called out and said, God, this is, exactly what, this is exactly what we need. We need our sight. We need our spiritual sight. We need to see. We need to see. Uh, our world is hurting, hurting very badly. And I, 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 our community is hurting. We need spiritual sight. God, God wants us to cry out to him. So my question to you this morning is, when was the last time that you cried out to God for anything? When was the last time that you were persistent and just, I'm not relenting until I get an answer. I'm not relenting until Jesus comes over to me. I'm not giving in. I'm not giving up. I'm not letting the world push me back. When was the last time that you cried out, for, cried out to God in that way? When was the last time that you um, prayed for something more than once in longer than 15 seconds? I'm being generous with 15 seconds. I know that's sad, but that's the truth. When was the last time you cried out to God in that way? We have needs. I know that you have needs. I don't know if your need is in your health or your marriage or uh, family or money or what. I don't know what your need is, but I know that God wants you to cry out to him. I know that he wants to meet your needs. He wants to meet you where you are, and that's, that's the calling of Jesus. I love this verse in Luke 18, verse 7. It says this. Listen to this. And will not God bring about justice for his people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? 
No. No, he won't. Cry out to God. Let him know your needs. And maybe you feel like, you know what? I feel like life is all right right now. Things are okay. You know someone who has a need. You know someone who needs a touch from God, who needs to hear from him. When was the last time that you cried out to God on someone else's behalf? When you humbled yourself not to be served, but to serve. To call out to Jesus for someone else and say, God, they need you right now. So, just for the next five minutes or so, I would love to give you the opportunity to cry out to God. For whatever needs you have, whatever needs you're experiencing, I'd love for you to come in to cry out to, to God. And what better place to do it than here, right now? What better place to do it than at the altar? You don't have to come down, but you're more than welcome. I'd love to, to open up the altar for you to come down and just cry out to God for a need of yours or someone else's. This, this, this need to be transformed and be changed and renewed. Maybe you just need a fresh touch from God today. A new infilling. Just some energy. It could be that simple. I just need some energy, Lord. I prayed that after first service. God, I need some energy. So I want to open that. You can pray, kneel at your, you can kneel, you can stand up and just raise your hands and say, God, I, I just need you right now. So I just want to give us like five minutes right now just to respond to him. Let's take some personal time to have conversation with your creator cry out to him for your needs. Would you do that with me?
lot of uh, this morning is about intentionality, <clears throat> living a life with intention and purpose. But every, seeing every aspect of life as an opportunity to, to reach out, to be light, to be salt and light. I hope that these, uh, these moments are sweet to you. You thirst and hunger for these things. Opportunities just to meet with the Lord and to, to, to feel his presence. There's a lot of need that's out there. I know that uh, one of my students had to come home from camp and one of his best friend's dad committed suicide this week here in Pekin. I only tell you that because our world's lacking hope. Because our world has pride in its stuff. Our world has pride in its work. Our world has pride in its self-righteousness or morality, but it's it's empty. It's empty. You see all these famous people, all the money and fame and stardom, big houses, nice cars, committing suicide. Why? Because it's unfulfilling. It doesn't meet their needs. It's empty. I want God to meet your needs. He wants to meet your needs. That's the best part about it. He's looking to meet your needs this morning, this week. So I hope that you just continue to keep keep crying out to him. Spend some moments this week to try to live and, and be the light and be the hope um, that Christ has called us to be. My last little story about just kind of living with purpose and intentionality that I want to mention. <clears throat> so I told my students this week as I was talking at camp about this, uh, this guy that I met. And he was a, he, did, he had a nice job. He was finance director. Him and his wife both had good careers, made, made good money, had a little, dirt, little daughter, lived in their hometown. And God called them to move. So they picked up all their stuff. They quit their jobs. They moved to Chicago. And uh, in Chicago, this finance, ex-finance director who had a career and lived in his hometown and had all his family around him and had a great family life, um, started working at Home Depot as a checkout person, cashier. And you would, you'd think, why would this guy leave his house and his family and uproot everything and take, take his little family and go to Chicago and work at Home Depot for like pennies? But he said, God called me to, to be salt and light. He's called me to, to reach as many people as I can for Jesus in Home Depot as possible. And when I, when I met him, he had been working at Home Depot for a year. And within that year, he had led five people to the Lord inside of Home Depot. Like inside of Home Depot on the clock. I can just see him sitting at some like patio furniture that's trying to sell and praying for people to accept Jesus right there in Home Depot. That's what I mean by living with intentionality, humbling ourselves. There's no job beneath me. There's nothing that I'm not willing to do to, to serve the Lord, to honor him, to go where he called me to be. And so uh, I hope as we live out uh, this week and this month and this year, that we live with that same intentionality wherever you're at, wherever you're placed, wherever, whatever sphere of influence you have, that you're looking to make Christ-like followers, to make disciples, to shed light and to be, be the good news and be hope. And don't let pride get in the way and fog up the glass. Just let, let Jesus take, take control and uh, surrender to him. So I'm going to close this in prayer. Thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for your attentiveness and your spirit. I appreciate it so much. Again, I, I love this church. I love being your youth pastor. It's an honor. Uh, I love our students. I believe in them. And uh, they're not just our future. They are now.
And so uh, I'm excited to share some of those stories with you tonight. If you come tonight to our camp service, some of our students are going to share what God did in their hearts and in their lives this week. And so I'd encourage you to come to that. But cry out to, cry out to God this week. Spend some time with him. Dear Lord, thank you for our time where we're able to meet with you and to commune and be overwhelmed by your love and your presence and your grace and your spirit, Lord. I'm so thankful that you're a God who loves and looks out and cares for the widows and the orphans and the lowly and the downtrodden and those who are mourning and the the poor in spirit, Lord, that you're looking to lift them up. Help me to have that same desire. God, give me your eyes. Help me to have sight. God, I, I want sight, Lord. Help me to see. Lord, we have a lot of people in this room with a lot of influence in their families, in their friends' lives, in the community. I pray that we use that to glorify you, to honor you. Thanks for meeting with us today. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.